Right or wrong, truth or consequences, the title of the sermon today. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to look at verse 36 real briefly, and then we're going to move on to verse 45. And as we do, uh, you know, there are a lot of different opinions about what's right and wrong. Uh, who is Jesus? A lot of questions that are being asked. And we have to turn, determine if we are followers of Christ, what is going to be our center? What is going to be our determination? And for us as believers in Christ, for us as Christians, uh, we go back to the Word of God, to the truth. And this is what determines. Everybody will have their own opinions. It's very prevalent in the Old Testament. We see 42 different times that the Bible tells us, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then you see destruction to follow. As we can clearly see, uh, society today determines what is right by what they feel or by what they think. And it is different for each person, eliminating the need for absolute truth. But what does the Scriptures have to say? And we're going to look at two different individuals this morning. Uh, one Jesus calls a good and faithful servant. Another basically calls wicked and unfaithful. And we need to ask ourselves the question, which one do we most align with today? I want us to start and want to kind of tie up something from last week. We talked about the second coming of Christ last week and about the different views on how Jesus is coming. We talked about the preterist position, which is uh, what most people think. Uh, most of the things, most of the prophecies have already occurred. And then the dispensational, uh, premillennial view, which uh, they believe most things are yet to come. And we looked at those two positions and uh, we looked at the Scriptures uh, from Matthew chapter 24 and we cut it off at verse 35. But I want to read verse 36 to you and then we're going to drop down to 45 because it continues to talk with the second coming. Uh, but this is a question that comes up a lot and a lot of times people will use this as uh, a reason to uh, not believe that Jesus was divine, not to believe that He was the Son of God, not to believe that He was part of the Trinity, uh, that He is God in the flesh. And this passage or this verse right here is sometimes misconstrued and misunderstood. It's verse 36 of Matthew chapter 24. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, a couple things to know. Um, first of all, in the most ancient manuscripts, uh, nor the Son's not even found there. That, that little phrase was added. Now, uh, that doesn't bother me whatsoever. Uh, it's, it's listed in some of your Bible translations. It will be listed there and others not. But uh, if you ask most theologians, there's two different positions. The first position would be this. It's called the doctrine of kenosis. Now, that's just a big seminary word uh, that basically helps us to understand Jesus being fully God and fully man and how Jesus gave up some of His divine attributes or His divine rights while He was here on earth. So, in other words, the position would be this of kenosis that... Uh, Jesus, in, uh, in His divine nature, purposely determined to give up some of His miraculous or divine rights while He was here on earth in order that He might fully experience that of what we did in mankind. In other words, He could fully experience the physical pain. He could have the temptations to sin but not sin. He could have all the same experiences yet still be God in the flesh. So, in other words, He would have said, you know what, I give up the right of, omni of complete omniscience of knowing when the Son will return for the purpose of being here on earth. Now, others would still take the position that it was in how the question was phrased in the sense that uh, just as when we tell our son or daughter, uh, look, there aren't any cookies right now. 
okay? <laughs> there, there aren't any cookies for you right now. Even though there may be cookies up there, what we're saying is that's not for you right now. Now is not the time to receive. Now is not the time to know. Uh, and as you look at the grammar, there can be a case made for that. So those are the two positions. I know there are questions that sometimes are, that arise uh, from that very passage, and sometimes people will use that verse, and I uh, just want you to be aware of it. Now let's slip down to verse 45, which is our passage this morning, uh, as we look at truth or consequences. Excuse me, verse 42. No, verse 45, like I said earlier. I've got dyslexia. I need my glasses up here, but I refuse to wear them, by the way. If you notice how the numbers are getting smaller in Bibles as they print, and the print is getting smaller in Bibles now. I don't know what they're thinking, but who then is faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose Master finds him doing so when he returns. Now, Jesus describes a faithful and a wise servant here, okay? He, he talks about that, and then he's going to describe someone who is not faithful. He's going to describe someone, matter of fact, as he goes as far as to say wicked, because they choose not to follow his word. They, he chooses not to follow the Master's commands. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, or excuse me, 46, it will be good for the servant whose Master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Verse 48, But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to feed his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place for the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Faithful and wise or unfaithful and wicked. Which category do you fall into this morning? Now, let's take a moment and let's look at what Jesus describes as the faithful, as the wise servant. First of all, we see that the faithful and wise servant knows his instructions. He knows what His instructions are. We know this for us. Our first instruction that God has given us was the greatest command found in Matthew 22:37. Actually, it's found three different times in the Gospel. Also found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, 5, and 6. And it was this. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And the second Jesus said is this. To love your neighbor as yourself. So we start with that initial set of instructions. Right here, the master was given charge, or excuse me, the servant was given charge. He was given a set set of resources. He was given an opportunity. And what did he do with it? Well, the first one, he was faithful. He decided to not only know the instructions, but follow the instructions. So he knew what the instructions were. He listened. He could quote them to you. What about you this morning? Are you bringing glory to God in your life? Very simple question as believers that we need to ask ourselves. How am I bringing glory to God today? Well, one of those ways we know uh, is by worship, but also, he says, by loving others. The Bible goes on and tells us in Matthew 25, the very next chapter, he gives a whole list of people at the end of chapter 25 of those who were 
faithful. Those who love the Lord and who when they saw the hungry, they fed them. When they saw uh, those in prison, they visited them. When they saw those who were thirsty, they gave them drink. And then Jesus listed another group of people who weren't faithful and wise, whom He also called wicked, who chose to not love God and love others, who chose to live life simply for themselves. And He says, Depart from Me, I never knew you. How are you doing with the instructions that you've been given thus far? Use His time to fulfill the mission. Number two, the faithful servant took the time that he was given and used it to fulfill the time of the mission. His mission that he was given. The work that he was given to do. Now, what was the work that God had given us? Now, one of the primary responsibilities we've been given as, quote, New Testament believers, followers of Christ, is found in the Great Commission. Now, we're all familiar with that, but I'd like for you to turn with me. Let's look at that. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 19. Matthew 28. What is our mission? It's this. Then Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, and surely I will be with you even to the very end of the age. So go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teach. Where to go? You know, a lot of times people ask me, Now, why do you all keep sending people out? Why do you all do that? You know, Probably people have asked uh, Daniel and Mindy, why, why are you going? Why are you doing this? Well, I'll tell you for us and I'll tell you for them, is because that's something God has called us to do. He not only did it through Scripture, but even individually. He's called each of us. And sometimes that looks like geographically going to other nations, going to other areas, going to other states, whether that be Tanzania or whether that be California, whether that be Florida or whether that be Arizona, whether that be here in Texas, whether that be in Corinth. Christ specifically gave us a command to go. So there's not really a question of whether. We can debate a lot of things. I had someone early on in the life of our church says, said, uh, you know, I don't believe that the church, that's the church's purpose. I said, what do you do with this? They go, I think that was for the disciples. And uh, I thought to myself, we don't need any of the Bible then. If it was all just for the disciples, why don't we just chuck it out? And we'll, do, we'll kind of do the Rousseau, everything that looks right in our own eyes, we'll just go. Problem with that, you go down that mentality, and quite frankly, some mainline denominations have gone that direction, and it's called the death spiral. When you come to the point to where you consider it an option or something that no, need, no longer needs to happen, to go, to baptize, to uh, teach, when you go that direction, you no longer have the command or the blessing of which Christ has given. We lose the very purpose for which we Exist. You see, our purpose isn't just get saved and get to go to heaven. If that's what it was, then we could just take a lethal injection or something and we'd all be done, okay? But it is to go. It is to teach. It is to baptize. It is to make disciples. Those are that is our mission. That's why we want to be about receiving people into the kingdom, equipping people, and sending them out. That's the mission that God's given our church. That's the mission that God is giving you. The question is, are we being faithful with what we've given? So when we give and we support, we do that. When we go and help, when we pray, when we go ourselves as opportunities come to help, uh, when we go to our neighbor, when we invite them, uh, when we pray for them, when we uh, look for opportunities to share the love of Christ, 
then we are obeying the mission, the purpose for which we are and were created. Jesus says this is a faithful and wise servant. Number three, because He's working every day, it doesn't matter when the Master returns. I remember when I started college, uh, I, uh, I really didn't study a whole lot in high school. I know most of you are probably very surprised by that. But I didn't study a lot in high school. When I got to college, my parents had told me it was going to be very difficult. So I determined I'm really going to study. So I remember the first test I had. It was on a Tuesday morning. <coughs> Excuse me. And on, on that Monday night, I said, you know what? I'm going to study from like four, or excuse me, from like six to ten tonight. I'm going to study four hours, and I did that, and it seemed like a mammoth amount of time. And I just thought, man, this is this is unbelievable. I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep this up every every week, or every test, but this is a lot of time. And I remember I went and took that test, and I made a 76, and I thought, this is ridiculous. What do they expect? I studied four hours for that test, and I made a C barely. I think this is crazy, man. And uh, I was really enjoying school, and I looked at college as a great time to be had, and classes were the price that you paid to have to be there. And uh, I decided to adopt that mentality, and at the end of my first year, they sent me a nice letter inviting me to do a little better next time with consequences that I might not fully appreciate and that my parents... Uh, would not like whatsoever. By the way, my father had already told me moving home was not an option, that I was done there. And so, uh, you know, I had to make a paradigm shift, which meant I had to learn how to study and recognize that four hours was not an enormous amount of time to study for a Greek test. And uh, that you actually needed to start learning some of that as you go. There's a process. Sometimes we look, and as we'll see, the wicked servant, has, we have the mentality that, you know what, as far as my life with Christ, as far as my relationship with God, that's something I'll just get to later. You know, right now i got a lot going on. I mean, i got work, i got kids, i got a spouse i got to raise, i got all these things going on, and it's not really a very convenient time for me to serve or really engage in this so-called spiritual life. This is not really working for me right now, but when I get through with all this, when I get my kids all graduated and, and uh, my spouse matures and I get to wherever it is that I think I retire, I get to wherever I think I'm supposed to be, then I'm going to really get serious about that. I'll start helping. I'll start serving. I'll start growing. When I get there, guess what? That day never comes. probably comes in the millennial reign. Uh, that's when that time comes, okay? So for us, the reality is, is that's the exact approach the wicked servant took. The good servant, the faithful servant, he was just faithful in the day-to-day. Kind of like the Cal Ripken. You know, Cal Ripken didn't hit the most home runs. Uh, he, he wasn't the best at anything except he came to play every day. He was just faithful every day as he played shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles. What about you? God's not so, looking, so much looking for uh, the big thing that you're going to do. The great thing, the way that you're going to change the world as much as He's asking you to begin to be faithful from day to day. You see, the wise servant, the good servant, the faithful servant, it didn't matter when the Master returned because it didn't change what He did each day. Now, let's look at the wicked and selfish servant. Well, first of all, as we talked about, he's too distant. He thought to himself, my Master's a long way away. He's gone for a long time. I'll get to that later. 
I'm not going to worry about that right now. As a matter of fact, he said, you know, there's plenty of time uh, to make it up, and I'll, I'll probably even get some kind of warning. But actually, at the end of the, at the end of the passage, we find out that there was no warning. That the master returned, he was not ready. He had not been faithful. He had ignored the instructions that were given to him. Now, we as human beings, uh, being at the top of the food chain, so to speak, so many times think that we understand risk and risk management. And we understand the process of decisions and that we are in control. We can control things. And for the most part, we think, you know, we, we can make pretty good decisions. We're pretty wise. But, you know, actually, uh, I was reading an article in Time Magazine here this week that kind of defines that a lot of times we're wrong. We have these perceptions of this is what I need to be, this is what I need to do, and these things over here will just be fine. It'll all be okay. You want an example? Well, number one, the avian bird flu. You know, there's still, when Americans are polled, there's still a lot of them that are extremely afraid of the bird flu. And they're afraid of what might happen to them and afraid of what could, could occur and how uh, people are going to die. And you know what's actually the truth is no one in the United States has actually died of avian blue, bird flu at this point. But most Americans don't get a flu shot. And last year, uh, nearly 40,000 people died from the flu. Bird flu. We need to do something about that. I need to get a shot for that. What about the regular flu? I just let that one go. I'm sure I'll be fine. What about this one? I, I remember one time at one of the churches I was serving in, we were going to fly to uh, the other side of New Mexico. And I had a family come up to me and say, you know, uh, we don't feel comfortable uh, with our son or daughter flying. We would rather y'all drive the vans. And I said, well, there's only two of us. We've got two vans. It's about a 22-hour uh, trip. If I drive 22 hours through West Texas, because I've done it before, I promise you I will fall asleep and have a wreck. That is my commitment to you. <clears throat> and uh, so would you like to come? Oh, I can't come. But I still think it would be safer for you to drive. You know, statistics tell us that uh, a lot of people, matter of fact, Looks like 444,000 people a year will die through tra traffic accidents, uh, through fatal car crashes. Uh, but virtually no one dies from commercial airlines here in the United States. We'll have a few a year. 9-11 was a complete anomaly. It almost never happens. But the perception is the plane will kill me and the car won't. That's a bad perception. Or even one more. Let me, let's talk about this for a second. What about those of us when we, we're still looking at the E. coli and the spinach? We're worried that we better not eat any of that spinach. We're going to get killed. We're going to die. We're going to get this. We're going to die. But yet we load up our baskets with French fries and cheeseburgers and nachos. And our cholesterol continues to zoom up. But I'm not eating that spinach right there. Put filters on our water. We make sure we have air filters in our, in our homes. Uh, and yet we smoke cigarettes, cigars, and pipes, therefore eliminating the need to put the filters in there. 30% of us still don't wear our seat belts. And even how about this one? We're so concerned about the, the, the E. coli. We're so concerned about the stuff that's getting in our food, but two-thirds of us are overweight. Okay? So there's some other things that are putting us at much higher risk than the things we get focused on. That's exactly what was happening to the unwise servant, to the wicked servant. He was focusing on the dramatic. He was focusing on what he thought maybe would occur in missing reality. He was ignoring the instructions. 
the instructions that have been given to us to love God, to love others, and to accomplish the Great Commission. Not only that, he was exploiting his position and he was exploiting others. He was taking those resources. He wasn't being faithful at work and he was misusing and abusing his position, the resources and the opportunities that the servant or the master had given him. What about you today? How are you being faithful with the opportunity, with the, with the resources, with the challenges sometimes that God has given you? C.S. Lewis wrote a great book that I love. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, here's what is the basic premise. It's a, a, Some younger demons are being taught, and one specifically called Wormwood is being taught by an older demon called Screwtape. And he's trying to tell him, this is how you work with Christians. This is how you tempt them. This is how you bring them down. And he's writing Wormwood a letter after he sought to uh, rather dramatically try to torture a Christian. And this is what uh, the, the older senior demon tells him. He says, Wormwood, I'm truly amazed at you. Your methods are so antiquated. I can scarcely believe it. You and your ridiculous talk of torturing Christians... Can't you see that those things don't work anymore? It just makes them mad, and then you can't do a thing with them. Listen, it's been done that way. It's not done that way anymore. We quit that right after the McCarthy hearings. You're over 40 if you laugh at that. Catch up, you bungler. There's a whole new approach to getting Christians to denounce their faith, and it works. Remember all the stuff we used to do to arrange for their torture, like throwing them to the lions and about putting them in dungeons. Well, I enjoyed that, but it's just not effective anymore. Now we do something new. And it seems to work really well. For lack of a better way to describe it, it's called trial by affluence. Trial by affluence. The point is it gets results. We've never seen anything like it down here. The big boss came up with the original idea, but we keep adjusting it for the times. It's so simple you wouldn't believe it. Here's what you do. Take a good, solid Christian family, perhaps a guy and his wife, maybe some kids. Get the decent church-going family so that you can make an example of them. Now start pouring on the good life. Give them a boat, camper, nice car, nice house, big screen TV, and incomes that will allow them to get a lot of extras. And let them get obsessed with buying and finding those extras. And add to them a couple of days a week that they don't have to work that hard. Take it easy today. Blow this day off at work. Add those things to it and watch what happens. Watch him start to crack. Sooner or later, you'll hear him mention the name of God and how God gave him all this stuff. But he'll probably be hooking his boat up on Sunday morning as he's taking off to go to the lake when he says it. Or maybe just turning on his big screen TV and sitting there paralyzed, not worrying about anything else and just stuck there and not doing or spending time with his family, prayer, Bible study, or anything else. We find that with each week, we give him another shot of this stuff and he takes one step further away, away from God and toward us. I don't know why we didn't think of this before, just goes to show you that our boss can adjust to the times. He claims America is almost fully in his grasp. 
And it's almost solely through this new method. You've got to give him credit. He's never lost a country yet. So get going. This should be the perfect weekend to get started on your new case. Your sinister superior screw tape. Now, if that's reality, and I, I think that it is, it behooves us to be aware that our enemy comes against us not necessarily in flesh and blood, but in spirit. And in ways that we're not always going to recognize. Sometimes we can take good things and let them get out of kelter where they become our idols, where they become our first things. I want us to look finally and give us some practical things as we consider how to make God-honoring decisions. Now, there's some methods that are sometimes used that they're just kind of the way that we do it because it's easier or because we're afraid to really spend the time and really get after it. And so sometimes we'll just do things when it comes to making decisions in life, making decisions for God. We'll, we'll do the fleece method. I'm going to throw that fleece out there, and if it gets wet, then I'll do it. Or maybe I'm going to use the flip a coin method. Or maybe I'll just not do anything and just see what happens. I'll take the path of least resistance. I'll just kind of ease in and just kind of sit there. I'll procrastinate, not make any decisions. I'll dream. I'll just pick out a verse here and there and try to make that applicable for everything. But what about some wise methods? What about some biblical methods? Well, first of all, how about prayer and fasting? Fasting's almost a lost art for us today. Determining that I'm going to abstain from food or the media or anything else so that I might devote that time to knowing and hearing God. Or what about uh, wise counsel, wise godly counsel? Instead of asking just everybody I see, finding people that I know love God, trust God, and walk with God and asking counsel. Good question to ask ourselves. What would God honor the most? Or what would most honor God Almighty? What would Jesus do in this situation? And lastly, what would scriptural principles suggest? Scriptural principles like be subject to authorities, love God and your neighbor, be holy, help a brother in need, do not steal, be reconciled quickly to the person whom you have dispute, be truthful, don't be enslaved to things or substances, Treat your body as God's temple. Glorify God in everything. Live by grace, not legalism. Use your tongue to edify. Seek the good of others. What about you? Are you following scriptural principles or are you following what you feel? In the 1800s, there were two men who were actors. <clears throat> they were brothers. Uh, one was named John. Uh, the other was named Edwin Thomas. And Edwin was the, uh, the best of the two. And Edwin was a very uh, successful actor. And uh, he would often do shows in New York and Washington. And at one point, he and his brother John actually did a show together. Uh, and uh, his brother John played Brutus. And he played, and this was at Caesar. And many people knew about him, in particular Edwin, and he was pretty famous. But then one day... John, kind of in a fit and rage, went and uh, he went into the Ford Center and he shot and killed Abraham Lincoln. His name was John Booth. Edwin started to withdraw from the world at that point, uh, began to quit acting. And then about a year later, uh, there was a train coming through there in New York 
and uh, a boy had fell off into the track and uh, over close to the subway where they were, the tracks that they had there. And Edwin, not even realizing who or what it was, reached down, wrapped his leg around a pole and pulled the boy out and saved his life. The newspapers came and they began to, and to interview Edwin and they said, uh, do you realize what you did? And he goes, not that big a deal. He said, no, do you, did you realize who you were saving? He goes, I have no idea who the boy was. Turned out that it was Abraham Lincoln's son. One brother had sought to end life and to bring destruction. The other brother had sought to save life. This morning, we have a decision to make. Will we be the wise servant who chooses Jesus and to bring Him glory and to be faithful in our commitment to Him to accomplish the mission that He's given? Or will we be the unwise who lets the resources go, who lets the opportunity fly away? What about you this morning? Has there been a time where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you've not, has there been a time where you've decided, I want to make an impact? That's one of the reasons I put that in your bulletin this morning. If you need assistance, if you need help, whether it be financial, marital, parenting, knowing the faith, how to share your faith, we want to help you. If you're ready, then I want to encourage you to help someone else. You do what God leads you.